I am recording. Let's see how it goes. Okay, well, we're going to dive in. So, uh, we tonight's our last session on 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, where we've been looking at uh, Paul's argument about what it means to be a spiritual person, what, it, what, what, what really characterizes spiritual maturity. Thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, let's talk about what we know. What was the situation in Corinth? The Corinthians were, there was a church characterized by divisions, one of those divisions centered around the issue of what makes a person spiritually mature. And apparently, they, some of them were elevating uh, some spiritual gifts over others, particularly, it appears, the gift of tongues. They were elevating, and they were saying that people who, people who speak in tongues are more spiritually mature than people who don't. And uh, so Paul started off in chapter 12, by talking about how the the gifts all have a common source. It's, there's one spirit, one God, who empowers and energizes all the gifts. And he says there's also one common purpose for all the gifts. He says there's one common source, there's one spirit that energizes all the gifts. And he says the gifts all have one common purpose, and that's for building up the body of Christ. And so there's no room for anyone to boast about their gifts because that nobody got their gifts on their own, but they received it from God. And uh, everyone has a gift for the same reason, and so we ought to employ our gifts for the good of one another. And so after he, after he makes this argument about the source and the purpose of gifts, he shifts to talk about what is the real mark of a spiritual person in chapter 13. And he argued that that is what? Yeah, love. Love is what marks a truly spiritual person. And he says it doesn't matter. All of your claims to spirituality are nullified if you're not walking in love, if you're not operating in love. It doesn't matter how gifted you are, how spectacular the manifestation of the Spirit is in your life. If you don't have love, it gives the lie. And then we get to chapter 14. For, chapter 14 is really where Paul starts making his application of all this. And he starts instructing us about how we ought to handle the gifts of, particularly the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy within the, within the church community. Last week, we would have talked about Paul and his, his command to pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And he talks about how prophecy is superior to tongues because the person who speaks in tongues, he says, and he's talking about when he says, talks about tongues, he's talking about a devotional prayer language. Uh, and so he says, a person who prays in a tongue, they edify themselves, build up themselves. But a person who prophesies, a person who speaks into the lives of other people at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, they build up others. So prophecy builds up the church. Tongues builds up the individual. So, pro- so tongues, he says, is a, is a good gift. He says, I wish... I'd be happy if all of you were speaking in tongues. He said, but I would rather that you were all prophesying, that you were all speaking at the Spirit's prompting into each other's lives. And so that brings us to our last section uh, where he gives us some final exhortations, final guidelines for how to handle the gifts of tongues and prophecy within the local church. 
So with that, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to dig into the text. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with me tonight. Pray that you'd help me, uh, guide me. Pray that you'd prepare the hearts of the hearers. Father, may we all be encouraged and built up by your word. Would you help us to know what it looks like to keep in step with the Spirit, God, that your Spirit's power would find full expression in the life of City Church Garland, and yet that the foremost expression of your Spirit among us would be love. Would you, would you cause us to abound in love toward one another? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be starting in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, verse 20, and going through verse 40. And let's start just by reading the text uh, would somebody volunteer to read verses 20? Uh, just read the whole thing, 20 through 40. Who's got it? In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and may all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject themselves, subject to, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Okay. So we've got a few, uh, a couple of difficult passages, yeah, difficult verses in this passage. So we're going to take our time and sort of work through them. 
But the the big idea, what Paul is talking about, is the mature expression of tongues and prophecy in the local church. What does it look for spiritually mature people? What does it look like for them to exercise these gifts in the body? And so he says, first of all, uh, in verses 20 through 25, he says that we must have mature thinking about the use of tongues and prophecy. So we've got to have mature, and I've put in parentheses, biblical thinking. Uh, we've got to be thinking in line with the word about what these gifts are for and how they ought to be handled. Paul says that pre- preoccupation with the spectacular and overemphasis on certain spiritual gifts is a mark of spiritual immaturity which is exactly the opposite of what the Corinthian church was thinking. They were thinking that there were certain spiritual gifts that marked spiritual maturity. And so they wanted to really focus in and really emphasize these gifts and push people towards speaking in tongues. And Paul says uh, that's a mark of immaturity to elevate one gift over another. In verse 20, he says, Brothers, do not be children. And that brothers means brothers and sisters in the Greek. It would be inclusive. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So you remember back in 1 Corinthians 3, I mentioned this when we studied chapter 12, that that what he's really talking about is what makes a spiritually mature person. He's already accused them of being infantile in their thinking in relation to spiritual things. Uh, In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says, But I, brothers and sisters could not address you as spiritual people, spiritually mature people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. And so he's it's a, a hard rebuke. He's saying you're immature, you're childish. You don't you don't have a mature understanding of what these gifts are all about. And so when he, when he says to be mature in their thinking, he quotes a scripture from Isaiah to, to make his point. And this is a little bit of a confusing passage. It says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And then he says, Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and they all speak in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So it's kind of popular in in, uh, in a lot of Christian circles. Like we, we look at the book of Acts where, in like in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes down, tongues of fire touch the apostles, Peter preaches his sermon, and all these people come to Christ. So a lot of people, when we read this verse that says, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, we we think that he means something like what's going on in Acts chapter 2, like there's an evangelistic purpose for speaking in tongues. But actually, in the context of Isaiah, when Isaiah gave this prophecy, He's saying, he was saying that tongues will be a sign of God's judgment on unbelieving Israel. So he says, tongues, uh, by the people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners, I will speak. He's talking about the Assyrians who were going to come and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of Isaiah. And so he's saying that tongues are a sign of judgment on 
unbelieving Israel. So when Paul says, thus tongues are assigned not for believers but for unbelievers, that's how he means it. He means tongues are uh, uh, in the same way that unbelieving Israel heard strange tongues and did not repent, did not heed. He said unbelievers hearing tongues will not repent and will not heed. Um, and he illustrates it with this next verse where he says, if the whole church comes together and speaks in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So he says, if the whole church is speaking in tongues, it's not going to be edifying to an unbeliever who comes into the assembly. They're going to just think you're crazy. But on the other hand, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted and he is called to account for his sins. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, the concept of prophecy is a little is a little fuzzy because it's used a lot of different ways in the New Testament. So it can refer to... Paul talks about a person who, if someone speaks in tongues and another person interprets speaking in tongues, that's prophecy. In Luke's, in, in the book of Acts particularly... Prophecy can include things like giving praise to God at the prompting of the Spirit. That can be a prophetic utterance. You see that in the Gospel of Luke as well as in the book of Acts. You see people being filled with the Holy Spirit and declaring the Word of God evangelistically. And Luke sees that as prophecy as well. And then you also have this kind of prophecy where it's God given a special word of wisdom or a word of knowledge where knowledge that you have no way of knowing except by revelation from the Holy Spirit God imparts it to you and prompts you to speak it. And that's what that's the kind of prophecy that Paul is focusing in on in his example. And so in the same way, in Isaiah's context, when Isaiah prophesied this, that these foreign language speakers would come and unbelieving Israel would not repent, in the same way, believing Israel, we might call the remnant of Israel, they repented at the preaching of Isaiah's prophecy. I think that Paul is even using Isaiah as an example of where tongues were not edifying to unbelieving people, but to believing people, prophecy was edifying. It was salvation itself when he delivered his message. But yeah, so Paul, he says that it's a, their tongues is a devotional prayer language that a person uses. It says that when a person prays it, he, he, no one knows what he's saying except for God. And he, the person who prays in, the, in tongues is built up. He's edifying himself. It's a, a gift that God has given for encouraging himself or herself. Um, but there may be times when the Holy Spirit gives a prophetic word in a tongue and there's someone who can interpret. Um, so the Bible just tells us to be cautious. He says, well, we're going to get there, but he says if there's... He says, if there, he says, if there's no one there to interpret, then the person should be quiet. They can pray to, to themselves and to God. Yep. So uh, I thought of a verse, Revelation 19.10, where it talks about the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. That kind of be in the same kind of vein as far as prophecy. And, you know, that prophecy should testify to Jesus and mm-hmm. who he is and what he Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's... Definitely, when you read Luke and Acts, you definitely see that that thrust. And and I would say, and I've I've said this before, that the the spirit is the spirit of Christ. 
And so he testifies to Christ. His whole purpose is to point us to Christ. And so uh, if our if our practice of the Spirit ever becomes distracting and, and off, if it's ever off-center of Jesus, um, it's it's leading us away from, we need to question that. So, and this is why we, multiple times in the New Testament, we're called to test the spirits. And we're going to see even as we go on here that as people give prophecies, the, the church is supposed to evaluate when people are offering a word as a prophetic word, the the those with the spirit, the other believers are supposed to evaluate whether or not the what is coming out is genuinely of God. Test the spirits. So secondly, and we're getting there, we must have biblical order in the use of tongues and prophecy. I tried to think of a synonym for order that I could use. It would be a little softer because order sounds so stuffy and, and formal and, you know, we got to have like Robert's rules of order. You know, we're going to do parliamentary procedure in here. Order, order. I move to have Bible study. I second. So, but we must have biblical order in the use of tongues and prophecy. And Paul gives us some guidelines. He says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, has a lesson or teaching. I think that word in Greek is teaching a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So when you gather together, everyone has a different part to contribute. This is, uh, if you'll allow me to get up on my soapbox for just a minute, this is where the, the, the church in the West has really missed something. The early church was highly participative. It was probably more like this than it was a this, you know, sitting in rows and sitting, sitting in rows and having people talk at us. Uh, it was much more participative, much more everybody. So each one of you has a hymn. Somebody has a song. Somebody has a teaching. Somebody has a revelation. Somebody has a tongue. So the community operating by the Holy Spirit people brought their part. People had something to contribute. Now, I don't want to idealize it so much that like every single person all the time had something to contribute. I'm just saying that to to model ourselves after the New Testament pattern, we need to feel that that we need to contribute something, that God has given you a gift, God has put something in you, the Holy Spirit living in you wants to contribute to the life of the church. And so we need to make room for the Spirit to do that. He says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, so not simultaneously speaking in tongues. Okay? So that's this is in the Bible. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So he doesn't say don't speak in tongues. He says just don't speak in tongues. You know, pray to yourself and, and to the Lord, and it's okay. And then he says, let two or three prophets speak. And let the others weigh what is said. This word weigh what is said, it means like to evaluate, to consider what's being said. And so this means that prophecy in the New Testament church comes with accountability. So you can't just come with a thus saith the Lord and expect everybody to bow down to your authority because you said thus saith the Lord, right? And this is something that it is different than Old Testament prophecy. What Paul is describing here is not how the Old Testament prophets work. Somehow... At, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down and the, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all the people of God so that now 
the Holy Spirit's been democratized. It's no longer an individual prophet who the Spirit comes on to speak the word of the Lord, but now all the people of God are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and all of us can be prompted by the Spirit to potentially. doesn't mean that in every single church setting, every single person's going to get a word, but it means that we all potentially, as we're walking in the Spirit, we all potentially have the ability to be prompted by the Spirit to speak. The prophets speak, and the others evaluate what's being said. And so prophecy, however we work, however it works out in the life of the local church, it has to be done in a context of accountability. Past judgment. Past judgment, yeah. That's, that sounds a little heavier than way in. <laughs> yeah, you know, mm, I don't know. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. For, uh, he says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So again, not, not simultaneous prophecy, but let the first be silent and receive what the other is saying. Um, and I think when he's talking about a revelation is made to another, he's talking about this judgment on what's been said. So the first one gives his prophetic word and someone else feels like he's, you know, he, he senses that whether this is of the Lord or not of the Lord and he's going to, speak into it he says well the first one needs to be silent and let the person who's speaking into it speak into it we've got to be humble we've got to be willing to receive uh, if we're wanting to operate in the prophetic for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged now i also want to say this is when paul says all you can all do this you can all speak in tongues you can all prophesy Again, I think he's saying potentially you can all prophesy. He's not saying that in every single church service we should all prophesy and we should all speak in tongues. We shouldn't take him that literally. Even back in chapter 12, you may remember that he said, all are not prophets, are they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? And so I think prophecy, even though we can all potentially prophesy, there are some people whose lives are going to be more characterized by the gift of prophecy. God is going to work through them in a in a uh, particularly strong way. Uh, I think that's why you have people like Agabus, the four daughters of Philip in the book of Acts, who were referred to as prophetesses. Agabus was a prophet. I think it's because their their ministry was particularly characterized by this ministry. So I think there are some people who operate in it in a strong way. God uses them consistently that way. For the rest of us, it may be more of an occasional thing, you know? I mean, I feel like I've definitely gotten words from the Lord at certain times in certain situations. I've had a vision one time. I was at an event, just had a very vivid visionary experience, and I would call that prophetic, part of God operating operating in the prophetic. But it doesn't happen every day. You know, it doesn't. Every devotional time, I don't come away with, oh, yes, God wants me to tell someone this. and You know, it just doesn't. I think some people it may happen more frequently, but for me it doesn't. And I don't think that's wrong. I don't think I'm missing God by, by not operating that way. So for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn, all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. And so, if again, if you're going to step out into the prophetic, you've got to have the humility to uh, let others speak into that. Because we've all got the Holy Spirit and we're all being led by the Holy Spirit. So we've... Got to walk in humility and love with one another. And then he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then here's the, here's the hardest part of the whole thing. As in, as in all the churches of the saints, if we, if we take this really literally, y'all should all just get up and walk out of here because we, we have lots of women talking in this church. Uh, 
so, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay. That's a that's a great question. Um, I think he's I think he's he would be referring to the in in chapter eleven he's already talked about the headship of the husband over the wife, and that's really the key to this passage I believe. Uh, so in Greek the word for woman and the word for wife is the same word, and it's only context that determines whether he's talking about women generally or wives specifically. And so I believe that he's talking. Really, the better translation here would be wives. Uh, and as in all the churches of the saints, the wives should keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. And so he's pointing back to this principle from the Old Testament that, that wives should be under the headship of the husband. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. This is another reason I think this should be translated wives, because then what do the single ladies do? Who are they going to ask when they get home, right? And, and so, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. If we took this passage out of its context, it becomes very, very difficult if we just take it as a flat-out command. But if we look at it within its context, what's the, what's the context? What, what, what did we just read? Order of what? Yeah, of but particularly, how do yeah? So prophesying in the church context. So one or three people are offering prophecy. Well, so there are different views on it. Some people would say that that means a woman can't prophesy, and that would lead people to say a woman can't preach. There would be other people that would say that what it's saying is that if uh, so, it's talking about people submitting prophecies to the community and the community judging whether or not that prophecy is from the Lord, challenging, pushing back, asking questions about what this person thinks they're getting from the Lord. And so what they're saying is basically is that a wife should not challenge her husband's prophecy in the public gathering. If she wants to learn anything, she can ask him at home. So that's that's one way of taking it. That's uh, uh-huh. so, uh, and I think I think it makes good sense of the passage. And I also think, especially because in First uh, Corinthians eleven, we've kind of already been introduced to this issue of husbands and wives has having some tension in the gathered place. And also, I would say that this one thing that I don't think this can possibly mean it can't mean that women are not supposed to speak in church. Because in chapter 11, Paul has already assumed that women would be praying in church out loud and that they need to have their head covered while they're doing so. Uh, whatever, having their head covered. I ain't going to get into all that. But he assumes in chapter 11 that women are praying out loud in churches. And so I don't think this means that they keep silent, strictly silent. I think it means keep silent about your husband's prophecy. If you want to learn anything, ask your husband at home. I think that discussion about the prophecy, like Paul is saying that when a person speaks into it, it should be talked about right then and there. I think he's just saying that wives need to respect. Well, basically, in a nutshell, he'd be saying wives need to respect their husbands in that in that setting. Yeah, and again, he does he doesn't unpack it for us. 
But it is, it is a difficult passage. We can know that the, whatever, the Corinthians knew exactly what he was saying. We've, we're, we're 2,000 years away and we've got some historical distance and some cultural distance. We don't know exactly what was going on. We're, we're trying to, to harmonize a little bit with what we see, what we see going on in chapter 11 with what was going on in chapter 14. Um, and that's the, that's my best attempt to make sense of it. I still love you if you disagree. So what do we say now? We said we've got to have, we've got to have biblical order and we've got to have, and I, I said this already kind of, but humble submission. But humble submission not just to the community of faith, but humble submission to apostolic, and I've put biblical in parentheses, authority. Why did I put biblical in parentheses? To modify apostolic. Yeah, go ahead. No, so they had, of course, the letter, the first Corinthians letter, and eventually the second, but yeah, it wasn't mm-hmm. all compiled like we have. Mm-hmm. They really just had the Old Testament. That's right. So... He says, or was it from you? So this is his, so he's challenging the way that they're practicing tongues and prophecy in their local church. And he says, or was it from you that the word of God came? He said, Corinthians, were, were, are you where the word of God originated? Are you the ones who, who, who brought the, the, what he means by the word of God is the, the way that churches ought to operate, the, the normal practice of how churches ought to operate? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, and again, this word is shorthand for spiritually mature. If you think you're a prophet or you think you're spiritually mature, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. When Paul's writing, they don't have a New Testament. The apostolic message was the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, those who had witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ, who had been followers from the beginning. Uh, They were commissioned to lay the foundation for the early church and also to be they and their associates to write the New Testament, which was eventually collected. And so this is my point, is that when Paul is writing to the Corinthians... He's writing with apostolic authority. So he can say, what I am telling you is the command of the Lord, even though it had never been written before, necessarily, because he had that authority to lay that foundation. There's no one today who has that same authority that the Apostle Paul had, but the authority of the Apostle Paul, the authority of all the other apostles we have today in the Bible. And so... That's what I mean when I say we have humble submission to biblical authority. So I don't, no pastor, no church leader has the authority to say what I'm telling you is the command of the Lord unless they're getting it from this book. Okay? And so that's another guardrail for how we operate in the prophetic. We don't, we don't come heavy handed saying thus saith the Lord and you have to submit to what I'm saying. We have to submit ourselves to being checked is what I'm saying coming from this. And that's the only way that I can say it's the command of the Lord. Does that make sense? So so today, so the Corinthians were being called to submit themselves to the apostolic authority of Paul, who had received it from Jesus, what he was saying from Jesus. And today we submit ourselves to the apostolic authority contained in the Word of God, who was given to us through Paul by the Holy Spirit. I hope that makes sense. But it's really important that we understand that the scripture is our guide.
if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritually mature, so so yeah, so he's, so he's saying the word of God didn't originate with you, and you're not the only ones that the word of God has gone to. So in the previous passage, he talked about how all the other churches have this practice, um, and so you can. He said, Corinthians, you can look at what all the other churches are doing that we've given instructions to, and they're not acting like you're acting. You guys are out of line, and you need to you need to get in step with what God is doing in the church. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And so, my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy. Because he said prophecy is a gift that builds up the church. And so it's great to be to desire for God to use you that way, for God, for the Spirit to prompt you to encourage others. To, to speak words into people's lives that will build them up, that will correct them, that will turn them from sin. So he says, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. You know, some people have the view that when you get saved, God gives you a spiritual gift and that's your gift. I have a more dynamic understanding of spiritual gifts. I think that you can ask God for, if you have an area of weakness, but that area of weakness could... In your situation, it could really help somebody else. You can ask God to use you in that area. God, will you strengthen me in my weakness? Will you help me to be a blessing to this person? You can pray for God to give you a word of prophecy, but you can also pray for God to, to help you to be more administrative or be, you know, do something where you probably don't need help being administrative. We work in there. Uh-huh. Yeah. But so even so, so what I don't think we shouldn't fall into a thing of thinking, oh well, God didn't give me that gift, and so I don't need to operate in that. I think that God, the 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 overarching message, really from the Old Testament to the New Testament, is that God loves to use weak things to do um, amazing things. So we need to bring everything that we are, both our strengths and our weaknesses, and ask God to help us to love people well and to serve other people. And that's really the message of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. It's not find your gift and use it. It's identify how, what does love look like. You know, we don't get to, like, uh, you get married, you have a baby, okay? Nobody's got a spiritual gift of changing diapers, right? You got a spiritual gift of changing Okay, some, maybe some people do. But... But most people don't. I mean, there's some things that God has just put in to your sphere of life, and that's what love looks like. Love looks like caring for, doing the dirty jobs, submitting yourself. So and what's the difference then? I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. What's the difference? I guess what I'm confused about mm-hmm. is uh, there's talents, there's gifts. Mm-hmm. There's some things you were born with. Yeah. Like, like I sing. I sing, mm-hmm. right? I do all yep. that. I don't know if that's my gift yeah or if that's just a talent but either way am i supposed to be using it to edify yeah so that's that's a great question and i do think that there is well so with the way that paul uses the idea of spiritual gifts or gifts let's take the word spiritual out of it the idea of gifts in the new testament is that they all originate from god and so your your natural talent to be able to sing is a gift from god and you can use that in the body of Christ, and the Spirit will use it to bless the body of Christ. And then it's a spiritual gift to the church, because it's energized by the Spirit. So I think about when, when, you know I think about Moses and Aaron, 
right? And God's ability to to use uh, Aaron as a mouthpiece for Moses, um, and he if Moses had submitted, he would have empowered Moses to speak on his behalf. He said, "Who created man's mouth?" So I, I do think that you know we all have strengths, and I think it's good for us to operate in those strengths because those are the ways that we may be able to make the biggest contribution. So I think it's good to operate in those, but we shouldn't overlook an opportunity to operate in our weakness if it if it's what is the most loving thing to do. And that's what, I think that's really what Paul is trying to tell us is giftedness is great, but the real mark of the Spirit is love, and the Holy Spirit will empower us to serve people through love. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, what did he say there? He says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. This is interesting because he's saying that he had received something really spectacular from God. He had received a revelation from God that was beyond the ordinary. It was not normal for people to... He says that people, men are not even supposed to talk about the things that I saw. To keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I begged the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And I guess this is this is part of what informs my thought, even though he's talking about taking away something negative, praying to have something negative taken away, is that Paul, he never seemed inclined to boast about his strengths or the gifts that God had, had given him but rather his opportunity for boasting was in God's power through his weaknesses, the way that God would show up on his, on his behalf. And in uh, the beginning of this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, and he means your calling means like your calling to Christ, being called to Christ. When you were called to Christ, there were not many wise among you, There was not many mighty, there was not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, so I am not saying that you should, like, ignore your spiritual gift or not operate in it. I think that you should identify it, find out how God has made you, what strengths he's given you, and you should energetically, zealously employ those gifts for the good of the church. But remember that those gifts didn't originate from you. They are, they're a gift from God, from whom all things come. And be open that God, even in your weakness, God can do amazing things. And we can, he, he gets more glory by using weakness than by using strength, apparently. Does that make sense? Any questions? Uh, well, so let's think about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, but, 
Yeah, because he's going against a command of the Lord. Another example from 1 Corinthians would be 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Are you all familiar with that? So another one of the divisions within the Corinthian church is that a man had his, his father's wife he had taken as his own wife. And so his father, his mother, stepmother was living with him as, as his wife. And the Apostle Paul and, and the Corinthians, so the Corinthians had some funny beliefs. They had this, and it goes hand in hand with what they're believing here, but they believe that kind of like the Spirit of God is in me, I'm a spiritual creature now. And what happens in the flesh doesn't really matter, right? So they had this really kind of, uh, you know, I'm like an angel, man, you know, uh, really. And so they didn't take seriously these kinds of sins. I mean, sin in the flesh, they just didn't take it seriously. And that's a huge focus of Paul's uh, rebukes in, in 1 Corinthians. And so with this guy who's got his stepmother uh, in his bed, he, Paul says, you Corinthians, uh, you have become proud. You've become arrogant. He said, and you should have mourned. You should have been grieved by this sin. And he says, I, and let's, let's turn there because I want you to see this. First Corinthians chapter five, uh, in verse two says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now in this context, he definitely means get them out of the church, get them out of the believing community for I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Look, listen to this in verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus. So Paul invokes the name of the Lord Jesus, just like he's invoking the Lord here. He says, In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul, spirit, may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, at the return of the Lord Jesus. So he says, um, in the name, he invokes the name of the Lord Jesus and the authority of Jesus to say that this person who is living a lifestyle unrepentantly, contrary to what Christian faith professes, uh, he needs to be put outside. So... Uh, doesn't mean that we condemn him, that we write him off and say, well, just go to hell, right? We don't, it's not, it's not that kind of judgment, but it is saying that your lifestyle does not line up with your profession because the Bible teaches that those who have experienced the grace of God, who have genuinely been born again, they will be brought to repentance. And so when a person is living in a lifestyle like that and they've been confronted and they haven't, and they don't turn in repentance, then we have to treat them as though they are an unbeliever because their life doesn't meet their profession. Doesn't mean that we demand perfection. Doesn't mean we go around every time somebody stumbles, we kick them out of church. But it does mean that when we, when there's a clear biblical violation and we confront them with it and they say, I hear what you're saying, I know what the Bible says, but I'm doing my own thing, we go, brother, you got to do your own thing somewhere else because you can't do it here. It hurts the reputation of the congregation. It hurts the reputation of Christ. And we don't want, 
We don't want unbelievers on the outside to think that that's how Christians live. We don't want people to be confused about what, who, what the church is and what it's called to be. Paul says in this very chapter, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And so that person, if, if we allow them to stay, then younger Christians who may not, may be more impressionable, may not be as grounded in the faith, they see in person, they say, okay, maybe, maybe it's okay. Maybe that's compatible with the Christian life. And sin spreads like a cancer. I should say this too, that the purpose of church discipline is always restoration. So even though we take those steps to create separation between ourselves and this unrepentant brother or sister, we also do it, Paul says, we hand them over to Satan. And Paul's, Paul's conception was that the church, if you can imagine this circle as the church, it's the sphere of God's blessing. And so we put the unrepentant person outside the sphere of God's blessing into the dominion, back into the dominion of Satan, right? Because that's a, a common theme throughout the New Testament is that when God saves people, he takes them out of the domain of Satan and he puts them into the domain dominion of his son. Well, we put them back out into the domain of Satan. We say, Satan, you have your way with him. Let his flesh be destroyed. And hopefully through that, through being back out in the dominion of Satan, they're going to experience some things that are going to finally bring them to repentance. And when they do come to repentance, our arms are open. We're not. We're not here to say, "Oh no, now you gotta take a test. You gotta. You gotta. Let's have a six-month probationary period, and then we'll see whether you can be back." But we, we, if, when they turn in repentance, our, our arms are open, and we say, "Brother, sister, you come." That's yeah, that's right. It's exactly right. So that's a that's a that's a really good question because there's there is a lot of confusion about what it means to pass judgment. You know what it means to reject and condemn people versus what it is to really exercise biblical discernment and practice church discipline um, because they're not the same. Even though people will try, the people who are under church discipline will often try to spin it like they're being rejected, they're being judged. That church is legalistic. Blah 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 blah. That's where we 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 can't worry about what people are saying, what the spin is. We we just got to do. We got to be true to what God has told us to do and trust Him with the results. So verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. So in summary, I would say this, this is a summary statement. The Apostle Paul calls believers to a mature, controlled, and humble exercise of the gifts of tongues and prophecy. The mark of spiritual maturity is love for one another in the Spirit of Christ. And there's, there's a, a tension that we are, are, we, we exist in this tension. And I think, I think you see Paul living in that tension too, right? That he's, he's saying, he says, desire earnestly that you may prophesy. Do not forbid to speak in tongues. He, you know, he said, he wants, he wants you to speak in tongues. He wants you to prophesy, but he wants things to be orderly. I think, um, I think that Paul, part of his concern with the confusion issue, why, why would he be concerned about confusion? Why would he can be concerned about it being a disorderly gathering? G- given what he says about if an unbeliever comes in among you. What do you think he's concerned about? What is he, what is he thinking? If an unbeliever comes in and your church... Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I can say it in today's lingo, he's, he, he, Paul doesn't want the church to be kooky. He doesn't want the church to to be off-putting with an over-preoccupation 
on on the spectacular. And on on the other side of that, the other side of the tension is is that we don't want to be what some people would call functional cessationists. If you're like me and you believe that God still gives the gifts, we don't want to uh, not walk in those gifts just because we're too afraid of being kooky. So we have to we have to walk this balance and walk this tension where so things need to be done orderly and we all need to really own how those things need to be practiced but we also need to earnestly desire that God that God's spirit would have freedom to move the way that he desires to move within the body of Christ. And so that because it's by his spirit and by his presence that the world will really know us. And and foremost Paul says by love by the way that the Spirit's love manifests itself. Um, so anyway, so we want to be open to the Spirit and give free reign, but we want to be really, really uh, submitted to, to following the Lord's guidelines for us. So how might we, I mean, I feel like the application of this is fairly obvious. Is there any, you all have any thoughts around application of... It's challenging to me because the way that Paul describes it, he almost makes it sound like I say the early church was much more participative. They were probably meeting in homes, uh, probably at the context where this is going on. And so it would be more like in your community group, people giving words of prophecy and then letting people evaluate. I think, I think part of it is like our, our Reformation heritage, you know, where with, after the Protestant Reformation the pulpit, the preacher, kind of became central. And so we're, we're sort of in that tradition. So we come to sing the songs and hear the sermon, and we just don't really have the time or the space to, to facilitate that in a big worship service. Um, so I think the, the small group is kind of where you have to do it. And so that, that makes it even more important to me that, that we're really grounded in this and that we know how we need to be operating in it because... Frankly, I mean, when you start, when you're meeting in homes, that's where you, you know, the pastor's not there to, to manage and things. And so it's really important that everybody, that the church owns, this is how it ought to be done. And that we have the, when somebody goes beyond the biblical parameters for practicing these gifts, that we have the courage to say, brother, I'm going to stop you right there, <laughs> you know, and, and to have the freedom to do that in love and say, you know, I love you, but the Bible says that. Uh, I don't have anybody here to interpret, so I'm going to ask you to do that quietly to yourself and to God, you know. And that concludes our study of 1 Corinthians 